Hey friends, welcome back to the Journal Feed. My name is Nick Zelt, and this is the only place to get spoon-fed the latest and greatest of emergency medicine. We are here to keep you up on the literature, and to do that, we spoon-feed it to you. If you are hearing this right now, then you are not currently a Journal Feed subscriber, and so will not be receiving the full Journal Feed podcast, only getting a portion of the past week's articles. Don't worry, all good articles. But if you would like to get full access to both the podcast and the blog, then you'll have to become a member. All the details for that are at journalfeed.org. And remember, we never want money to be a barrier to better patient care. So if you're having any trouble affording a subscription, get in touch. We'll help you out. This is the audio version of the past week summaries, which this week were brought to you by our authors, Joshua Campbell, Alex Clark, Carmen Wolf, Laura Murphy, and Clay Smith. All right, let's skip to the fourth article. This I'm excited to talk about. It was titled, Validating the Brain Injury Guidelines, Results of an American Association for the Surgery of Trauma Prospective Multi-Institutional Trial, out of the Journal of Trauma and Acute Care Surgery. We have guidelines for when to get a CT head, but what happens if you actually find something when someone hits their head? Well then, what we have, we have guidelines for that too. We have the big guidelines, the brain injury guidelines. The American Association for the Surgery of Trauma has had these guidelines out for years now, and they've been picking up validation studies as they've gone along over time. And it's been quite positive. Big puts patients into three categories, big one, two, or three. And this is based on your history, the exam that you do, and the results of your scan. Based on these simple details, no blood tests necessary, BIG can direct you as to whether or not your patient needs to be hospitalized, if they need a repeat CT scan of their head, and neurosurgical evaluation. I love this. Love, 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 love this. This validation study was a prospective observational study of around 2,000 patients from 10 level 1 trauma centers, where the primary outcome was neurosurgical intervention. They also looked at other stuff that you'd not want to miss, like clinical deterioration, progression to needing a repeat CT, return to the emergency department rates, and 30-day readmission rates. Something that they didn't include, though, was long-term functional outcomes. But since this isn't necessarily a treatment study, it's more of a diagnostic thing, I don't think that I'd necessarily expect them to have that, but it would have been nice to see all the same. So, oh, this validation study actually did so well. All the patients that required neurosurgical interventions were in the big three group right where they belong. I'm not going to go over the criteria to be classified as big one, two, or three. You can open up a table on that or MD calc, whatever you like, but we'll talk about the results more still. Now, repeat scan is only recommended if the patient is in big three, but 1.3% of big one and 7% of big two patients had progression on their repeat CT scans. However, no big one patient went on to clinically deteriorate and only 0.7% of the big two group deteriorated. But that said, the big two group of patients should still be hospitalized. So if some small proportion of them do go on to deteriorate, then it's not the end of the world per se because you're probably going to be able to notice and act upon it. That being said, since all the patients who required neurosurgical interventions were in big three, you didn't actually do anything for this patient to make them better, per se, or at least nothing specific to a neurosurgeon. None of the big one or big two patients had TBI-related return visits to the emergency department or 30-day readmission. 
All of this being as wonderful as it is, and yet the compliance rate to these guidelines was very poor. Only half of the centers had compliance rates more than 30%, which is crappy, but it goes to show how much care we could still be saving. The authors estimated that the use of repeat CT scans and neurosurgical consultations could be decreased by 29% with the use of these guidelines. I will not forget to mention that this would also include a 100% reduction in the big one patients, depending on your local practices already. Now, these guidelines have been around for a little while already, and I hope that they start to get the attention that they probably deserve. I know I'm a bit overly positive about this in the moment, and I plan to do a little bit more literature review in the coming weeks that might potentially temper my enthusiasm, but right now I am super excited by this. And this could be pretty culture-changing if people start to adopt this more. In a spoonful, there are big changes ahead if we get some implementation studies to help with the acceptance of the brain injury guidelines from the American Association for the Surgery of Trauma. This was a very positive validation study. And then we have the fifth and final article titled Clinical Policy, Critical Issues in the Management of Adult Patients Presenting to the Emergency Department with a Mild Traumatic Brain Injury, out of the Annals of Emergency Medicine. Let's continue our talk about TBIs with the new ASEP clinical policy on mild TBIs. Mild TBIs are defined for these guidelines as, well, adults over the age of 16 who present with a GCS of 14 or 15, but improve to 15 within two hours of the injury. They are allowed to have a loss of consciousness, amnesia, or disorientation, but they had to be presenting within 24 hours of their trauma. Mild TBIs are the majority of TBIs. Thank goodness. But that means there are a lot of them in the emergency departments, and often you will be the only doctor that this patient ever sees for this problem. This clinical policy update wanted to answer three handy questions for us. The first was what we should be doing with clinical decision tools for deciding to get head CTs. Now, by this clinical policy, the Canadian CT head rule was offered a level A recommendation compared to level B recommendation for the new Orleans criteria and the Nexus. They all approach 100% sensitivity, but the Canadian CT head rule is a bit more specific, so in theory, it should save you some scans compared to the others. Next question is whether or not a repeat scan is necessary for a patient on anticoagulation or antiplatelets. If the neurological exam is reassuring, then just one scan should be enough to exclude clinically significant injuries. That's a level B recommendation. The highest risk patients seem to be the elderly on antiplatelets, so if you're going to be extra careful in anyone, I guess it should be those patients. They go on to offer a level C recommendation to warn patients about symptoms of delayed intracerebral hemorrhage, and to put some thought into the risk of these patients potentially, you know, going home where they could fall again or be hurt again and continuing these anticoagulants or antiplatelets in that environment. The last question they addressed was to look for tools to identify patients with high risk of post-concussive syndrome. Sadly, post-concussive syndrome is a poorly understood diagnosis, but is associated with higher morbidity in the patients that do develop it. There is no handy bedside tool that you can use to screen patients for this diagnosis or for developing this diagnosis, but they do point out some risk factors like female sex, previous psychiatric history, a GCS less than 15, having been assaulted or intoxicated when they got their trauma, and a loss of consciousness. 
These patients with risk factors are more likely to benefit from proper concussion teaching before they go home and possibly even follow up at some kind of a TBI clinic. As a quick reminder, in case you've forgotten, post-concussive syndrome is essentially just prolonged concussion symptoms. Now, in a spoonful, I like quick clinical policies. This one answered some good questions. The Canadian CT head rule is favored over Nexus and the New Orleans criteria. You don't need to rescan patients with good exams, and there's no surefire way to predict which patients are going to get post-concussive syndrome. Okay, that's all our articles. Let's do a quick wrap-up, shall we? From the fourth article, keep an eye on the brain injury guidelines. They look better and better by the day to me. This was a promising validation study. And then from the fifth article, ASAP answered a few quick questions for us about TBIs. Now again, if you are hearing this right now, then you are not part of the members feed, and so you're missing three articles from this past week. One of them was talking about how does your dose of sedatives affect post-intubation hypertension. The second one looked at non-disabling strokes and whether or not we should be thrombolizing them. And the last was Cochrane's look at DOEX for PEs. Links to all the articles summarized can be found at journalfeed.org, where the newsletter is the best way to make the podcast into a bite-sized nugget of space repetition. Our goal here is for you to read less, learn more, and save lives, one spoonful at a time. Thank you.